This is the St. Louis Podcast Network. You're listening to the Last Man Up Podcast, part of the St. Louis Podcast Network. Matt Berger, Clay Byersdorfer, and Andy Hanselman alongside. Wherever this is you are, new music. Wherever you are listening, it's got a little more umph to it, doesn't it? Gets the people a little going. Bit. Wherever you are listening to us and whenever you are listening to us, we hope you are well. We got a full show today. I mean, just a humdinger. A humdinger of a show. Jam-packed. Jam-packed. NFL Hall of Fame nominee co- and co-host of the other pregame show on CBS Sports Network and member of the Super Bowl 30, or 34 Super Bowl champion Rams, London Fletcher, and then author Jeff Perlman. He'll be joining us. His new book is titled Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. So, we almost sound like a real podcast, gentlemen. I mean, I mean it's big it's name. pretty unbelievable. London Fletcher and and uh, Jeff Perlman in our little podcast. Tara Wellman just texted me, uh, our lovely guest from last week, just texted me and said that she was grateful to uh, have gotten a shot with us before we got discovered <laughs> and made it big time. Tara, you were, yeah. Tara, you know you were always number one in I, our hearts. I told her that she hold, held a special place Absolutely. In we, we, we will always take a little bit of you with us. <laughs> Wherever we may go, Tara Wellman, you always have a home here. On the Last Man Up podcast. What do you mean wherever you may go? Wherever we may go. Huh. You guys going to leave me already? The th- yeah. we're, this the three of us. I figure if we're oh, going us. somewhere, we're it's going to be the three we're, of we're us. Get oh, on gotcha. a rocket ship and go nowhere Absolutely. But, nowhere I thought but you were going to go like, over to hey, Dan McLaughlin's <laughs> cool network. <laughs> no, I leave no man behind. Dan, McLa- Dan McLaughlin's got a network now? I know he's got his one podcast. Well, but, I'm sure he wants a network. Oh, yeah. who, does, who, who doesn't want a network? Well, he's a busy guy, man. Tim has a network, too. Tim does have a network, too, but I I, I tried. And they're not looking to add. This is before you and I started talking. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, this has not been a recent development <laughs> oh, okay. since we started doing this. This is before this came to fruition. Gotcha. I mean, I used to work at 590. Well, I, sure. Obviously, I'm going to talk to them first. And it's not like, you know, Tim and I, we have a lot of respect for each other. It's just like right now, they're not looking to expand. I'm like, okay, just let me know when you're ready. That's what I said. So there so, you go. So here we are doing our own damn thing. Here we are doing our own damn thing. Yeah. Um, The St. Louis Cardinals... They swept the New York Giants over the weekend, and, or the San Francisco Giants, they, rather, over the weekend. Been, they've been the New York Giants since about 1957, You can tell us football season because i got football on the brain. <laughs> um, they sweep the San Francisco Giants, and then the Milwaukee Brewers come into town, and then Monday, <laughs> and then Tuesday. <laughs> so this team is going to have, like you said, Clay, while, before we started recording, this team is going to have to win out more than likely to – Get a shot at the postseason. I'm not saying it's impossible, but uh, it's it's uh, it's going to be very very difficult to do. The deck is definitely stacked against them in terms of who we play to end the season compared to everyone else. Our you know our strength of schedule is vastly different. It seems like the pitching has kind of really whipped them down. That's always <laughs> yeah. been kind of like a strong point of this Cardinals team mm-hmm. throughout the season, and now when we needed them the most, and I think a lot of it's just like we got young pitchers that yeah. are running out of gas. It's all it's all fatigue. It's 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 what all of it is. Like Flaherty looks gassed. Uh, 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 Austin Gomber, he looks gassed. Yep. John Gann is going tonight. We're recording this on Wednesday, September 26th. He is going to be pitching here in about an hour. We're going to see what the Cardinals are going to be able to expect from him. But uh, just the pitching, man. I think the pitching just kind of like petered out here towards the end. Yeah, we talked about it before. I mean, as much of a blessing as having that many young arms can be on, on the flip side of that coin is the fact that they're still young. 
and that that's, that's they're the inexperienced. Young. Yes, and you know they don't know what goes into a full major league season as opposed to minor league because minor league ball is already done. They're done. So, so these kids that have been pitching, you know, for the Cardinals are used to not playing baseball. You know, in, in the latter month of September, so. You're seeing a little bit of a mental strain, a physical strain. It's come to light literally at the worst possible time. I thought Derek Gould and Ben Hockman had a couple of interesting pieces the past couple days. Mm -hmm. The one that Derek Gould wrote about Dexter Fowler and where he sees himself fitting in with this team going forward, it sounds like he's very much wanting to be a part of this team going into 2019, and it sounds like he is going to get every opportunity to cement himself as the starter in right field. I know Cardinal fans, I know you hate to hear that. You want to see Tyler O'Neill out there. You want to see Jose Martinez out there. But it sounds like unless he unless he looks absolutely terrible in mm-hmm. spring training, which is, I mean, possible, right. I'd be surprised. But, I mean, with a new manager there, and he seems to be happier with this manager than the former manager, mm-hmm. I think he's going to go in with a, with a fresh mental attitude. I think he's also going to have something to prove. We may see even an, an even better version of Dexter Fowler going into spring training next year. And the fact that he was sitting in the, I guess you could say the owner's box or yeah. you know, or the GM box with John Mozalock, apparently that little uh, scrub up that they had over you know this past summer, it sounds like they're over that. And it, it, honestly, it also could be John Mozalock maybe working Dexter Fowler a little bit to see if he'd be interested in, in waiving that no trade clause. There's pro- it's a possibility of that for sure. Um, but as a Cardinals fan and and someone who follows the Cardinals, you should definitely advocate for Dexter Fowler Absolutely. coming back and trying to be the best version of himself for the Cardinals because the potential, you know, Dexter Fowler is a veteran Major League Baseball player. He's been through the ringer. He's won a title. You know, he's a good guy to have on your team, and he's an even better guy when he's engaged with the team. You don't play ten plus years in Major League Baseball by accident. No. Absolutely not. The talent is there. He's he's completely capable. He hasn't been healthy. You know, there's been other circumstances, like you mentioned, that had have uh, clouded the this previous season. regime. Yes, exactly. So, as a Cardinals fan, you want no, you read that gold piece in, and you want nothing more than that. You want him to come in. You want him to push those younger guys to be the best version of themselves. And if Dexter Fowler is your starting is a starting outfielder for the Cardinals next year, something really good happened. Dexter Fowler applied himself, and something really good I think happened. I think we've talked about this before with Jose Martinez. I like Jose Martinez a lot. Mm-hmm. I like having him on the team, but I think we both can agree that he is not a National League player. He's an American League player, so I think that if he is still on this Cardinals team going into next season, I would be. Really, really surprised. There's definitely going to be a market for him. Uh, a lot Absolutely, of, a lot of American League teams are going to come calling, and and John Mozeliak and Michael Gersh would you know be dumb to at, you know for lack of a better word to not at least listen to those calls. So that whittles down the outfield to Tyler O'Neill. Then I guess is the fourth outfielder. Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader, Marcelo Zuna. Um, you know th- those are your those are your guys, and you have Dexter Fowler, you have Odell. Adolis or um, Jose Adolis Garcia, um, they've they've got a lot of they've got a lot of talent. So yeah, you I got completely N- agree. And you got Nunez too, but Nunez is going to be kind of like the all over guy. He's going to be doing everything, but probably playing pitcher and catcher. Yep. He's going to have every single infield spot. He's going to be like the new Greg Garcia. And he's going to have every infield spot. He's going to have every outfield spot. He's going to be the utility guy. And what a steal he has been. Absolutely. He's been I fantastic. Mean, yeah, he's been a really welcome addition to the club. Um, I'm just wondering, I'm just trying to, to get a, an idea of where this Cardinals team is going to be going, 
you know, into the off season mm-hmm. and into the two thousand into the two thousand nineteen season. Not that the two thousand eighteen season is over; mm-hmm. it's not officially yet. But we're drawing to we're drawing to the end here. Um, the other the piece that I, I I mentioned before that I found interesting was the one that Ben Hockman wrote about all the empty seats that are in the stands, mm-hmm. and you kind of see this this time of the year when it comes to the Cardinals because schools in session. And another thing that people don't kind of realize too is, I mean, it's it, I wouldn't say it seems funny, but a lot of people don't think of it that live in St. Louis that people from like Arkansas and Tennessee and Kentucky and Indiana they come to St. Louis as part of like their vacation to go to the Cardinal games. Sure, they're not doing that either because their kids are in school. Right. So I mean, it kind of stands to reason that the weekend series against the San Francisco Giants is going to be sold out. But the games against the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday games against the Milwaukee Brewers, even though those games are more crucial, mm-hmm. there's going to be some people going dressed as empty seats. It's not new. This it's is, not. It's, no, not, it's no, been no, happening for years. No. It's not. It's not a new. It's not definitely not a new thing at Bush Stadium to see empty seats this time of year. But on a Monday night game, and that's, plus and remember that's too, baseball across the board too. The weather guy was also calling for like rain, rain again yeah. on yes. on Monday night and Tuesday, and uh, it, of course it didn't really. Happen. No, Monday it kind of misted, misted, and then there was there was a little bit of a rain delay, but very towards you know towards the end of the game, mm-hmm. and then when you know after those seventh inning uh, rain delays, they played the game in about twenty minutes. They finished. Yeah, right. <laughs> they did. Nobody, nobody's trying to be out there. At that no, hour. and uh, I mean at that point, even people at home, they're like, I don't know about you, like oh, people, oh even, I was cashed yeah, out already. I mean, yeah, people were pe- done. People even <clears throat> go to the game or are leaving. You know, I I mean I'm a if it rains and it's an extended delay, I'm probably going to end up going home. If you, or going somewhere else to watch the game, at least. Unless you have green seats, Unless, and then you're going to stay there. Yeah, because you're going to milk those for every single thing you <laughs> Absolutely. can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not all of us are blessed to have <laughs> you, green seats. You are, so you, blessed. Are, you are not leaving those. No. So, I thought. I mean, I just thought the, the article was great that Ben Hockman wrote. For sure. And there's a multitude of... Of reason you can you can point to any one of them, but yeah, it's it's not absolutely a surprise. Plus, the traffic getting downtown right now is absolutely horrendous because you move at a snail's place to get to and from Bush Stadium. There's always some kind of real construction going on. Welcome to St. Louis. Welcome to St. Louis. Well, they have two. Well, the Poplar Tree Bridge has been closed of the past five weekends. I think two weekends. Yeah, and then uh, the King Bridge is closed too. So I mean, it's just it's all bad. It's it's it's, it's going to happen, but it's not like they look like like Montreal there towards the end where there was like five thousand people there. I no, mean, there were still thirty six, thirty five thousand people that were at these games. So was what is Bush Stadium the the third one? Was it hold like forty five thousand? I thought so, it was, so, thought so it was ten, closer to fifty, but yeah. So ten thousand no shows. I mean, that's that's not exactly the end of the world, but because it's St. Louis and we're the B fib and we're mm-hmm. baseball heaven and blah 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 blah. If we have ten thousand empty seats, it's going to look like it's eighty thousand empty seats. Well, it's like three. That's like that attendance is like three Marlins games. <laughs> You're right about that. So it's silver lining and everything. Um, what is your make of Adam Wainwright and what his future with the organization is? We talked about it right before this, and and you and I talked about you know kind of what his head is probably going through this week what he's probably thinking you know going into the weekend knowing this this is his last start of the season for sure but not really knowing what's going to happen you know come October 1st you know cuz where does he fit on the rot if the cardinals you know make it in is he going to be a starting pitcher probably not you know that they're going to use right away but you know even if the cardinals don't make the playoffs you know it, it, a lot's got to be going through his head right now in terms of you know do i still have enough to come back for a year another year and you know if i do decide to come back who's that going to be with so 
I'm I'm really excited. It, it's a little bit of um, nostalgia. I I told you that I hope he absolutely just comes out and shoves regardless. Oh, it'd of be what, great. What yeah, the, you know the Cardinals are in and out against the Cubs. I think would be really really cool. Um, but you know he he's got a lot going on, and the Cardinals have a lot going on right now. But um, I'm excited to see what he can do, and and obviously wishing nothing you know but the best for him moving forward. Personal feelings aside, and I know you and I we both like Adam Wainwright a lot. Absolutely. We're not we're not trashing the guy. No. But personal feelings aside, would you be interested in bringing him back next year at any kind of any kind of capacity other outside of coaching? Like would you be interested in, in signing him to like a one-year deal, you know, heavily laden with incentives and he has to compete for a rotation spot. I mean, would you be interested in doing something like that? I don't even know if he even be, would be interested in doing something like that. Yeah, that that was going to be my first point is, well, what's the mutual interest there, you know, from Wainwright to the Cardinals? And I think, you know, if, if you had to place a bet on it, yeah, he'd want to come back for the Cardinals if given the opportunity. What John Mazalak and, and Michael Gersh are going to have to weigh is how much does that really benefit the team next year? How much does that, you know, hinder the other young arms that are yeah. coming up because the Cardinals have a gluttony of them right now and really they don't have a true path for, you know, where each guy is going to end up being, whether it's a bullpen or a starter. Um, personal feelings aside, yeah, if the deal is right, the money's right, if it's incentive-laden, however it works out, um, yeah, I, I, I could be for that. I think a lot of it kind of depends, too, on all this young pitching that the Cardinals have. Absolutely. How much do they still have going into spring training next year? Mm-hmm. Who's who? Like who's who's going to be traded for whatever a yeah. bat, uh, you know, a re, a reliever? I'm right. not sure what exactly they would do. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be another thing they're going to have to factor as well. But I mean, like I, I don't want to see him get one of these quote unquote Kobe Bryant contracts where they're going to sign him for like two years and forty million dollars, right. and he's just basically going to be kind of like a mascot. When he's not pitching, he's just gonna you know come out and wave his. He's gonna be like Jimmy Dugan, right? In um in a league of their own, he's gonna come out and wave his hat and then mm-hmm. sit back down on the bench. I'm not interested in that at all. No, no, no. And I don't think he would be either. I don't think he's, he he's is like he's, he's too prideful of a guy, right? But I mean, if we're going to bring him back on a one year kind of prove it deal, mm-hmm. and if he makes you know makes the club at the end of camp, then hey, great, that's awesome. I mean, sure. he's an experienced, proven player. Yep. But it's gonna be one of those things too, where you know where Pry's gonna come in too. He mm-hmm. may be like, look. Either you know, give me a, a guaranteed spot in the rotation and a multi-year deal, or I'm out of here. And if, if those are his demands, then then we'll, then we'll see you at your uh, at, at your induction ceremony. Right, just a nice pat on the back, and thank and you that's for it. everything that you've done. That's thank it. you for your service, Adam Wainwright. Thank you for your service, Adam Wainwright. <laughs> and then we would be done. We'd be done. Yeah, and like when I like, and it's a sad. It, even muttering those words is just kind of like man, it, it almost puts a little bit of a pit in your stomach because I. I mean, when Adam Wainwright came into the league is when I really started to become, you know, a, a baseball fan because I was I was just, you know, I was in middle school at that point. And to see him not be on the Cardinals and pitch for someone else or not even in the game of baseball is going to be incredibly weird. I remember the trade yep. that they made to get him in yep. 2000, what was it, 2004. Yep. It was um, J.D. Drew and Eli Marrero mm-hmm. for Adam Wainwright, Ray King, and Jason Marquis. Jason Marquis. Yep, Jason Marquis. And Adam Wainwright came out of the bullpen because I remember in 2006 when he struck out Carlos Beltran yep. with that 12 to 6 curveball, the Uncle Charlie that he has. Oh, yeah. The because Mo- the Molina fist bump. The right Molina the fist bump. Because at that time, 
There wasn't a baseball player that scared me more than Carlos Beltran when he was at the plate, especially when he was with the Astros. He was a cardinal killer. He oh, yeah. was a cardinal killer. It seemed like he hit a du- either a double or a home run every single time he got to the plate. On the flip side of that, though, when he was closing out games in the bullpen, it was just filth to watch. I mean, yes, it was. It, it, it was incredible to watch, and you, I mean, the excitement around him when he came in to the major league roster was unbelievable. There's a lot, de- a lot of details about that at bat that get forgotten. Bottom of the ninth, two outs. 4-3 game. Bases are loaded. Yes. I mean, and anything ties that ball game. Yep. Anything. And he just throws that. Just wicked. It's still the nastiest curveball I think I've ever seen. The first time that I had Andrew Claudio on my show on 590, I remember him because Andrew Claudio was a huge Mets fan. Huge Mets fan. And the first one of the first things he said, because you know he's on a St. Louis radio station, he goes, yeah, I'm still waiting for Carlos Beltran to swing that bat. <laughs> He goes, every single time I see that clip, I keep waiting for Carlos Beltran to swing that bat, and he never did. Uh, and you know, looking at, at the other accomplishments that Adam Wainwright had, he was a great regular season pitcher. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he kind of flirted with some Cy Youngs. He, I don't think he was ever a real serious candidate for Cy Young. No, he got screwed out of that one. I think it was 2010. It was the year he won almost. It was close to 20 or over He 20. won 19. He 19 won 19 games. games. Yeah. He started the last game of the season. And he got it was a in the last game of the season was a Sunday night game, and he got screwed out of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, um, I forgot what happened exactly, but I just know that there were a bunch of errors, and he ended up losing the game, which goes into a, you know goes into to a separate diatribe about how wins should not really determine the the Cy Young. Award. It, I don't think it does anymore. Ever since what, what was that year that Felix Hernandez won the Cy Young, and he only had like thirteen or fourteen wins. And then I saw someone posting on on Facebook about um, Jacob Degrom. Jacob Degrom yep. about like you know if he had this many more like this many more runs and run support, right. he would have won like thirty, 30 games. games. If they had <laughs> scored something ridiculous, they had sco- I think the stat was if they had scored two two the minimum two runs, he'd be like thirty and two right now. Yeah, or something. he would have had a ridiculous record. Um, but going back to Adam Wainwright, when you're looking at his postseason record and his postseason performance, not great. He he was he was not like, no, he the, was he was he was not the Matt Carpenter bulldog in the postseason that a lot of us wanted him to be. No, it's the same with Clayton Kershaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so it, it, again, you know, neither great pitchers during the regular season, neither one of them were were effective postseason pitchers until you know unless you know he's closing out the game in 06. But that's the only really postseason success that, that Adam Wainwright's ever had. I I want to say that his his record in in NLCS games and World Series games is well under 500. Has to it, be. It wouldn't surprise me. Which is weird when you think about it. How right. good you are during the regular season, and for some reason, what changes in the postseason? It's a do or die mentality. It's it's got to be. I don't know. Like if your opposition has more of a focus, and they they're just a little more centered on what you're doing than the, what they are during the regular season, that could very well be. And I don't know. And I, it's of course it's hard to, to pinpoint everything, but you know it could go back again to run support, where you know it could could have been a, a two nothing game that that he lost. Absolutely, yeah. could have been that too, but. Adam Wainwright, whatever his fate may be, and by the time we record this next, we will know what the Cardinals' fate will be. Right. Um, I'm, I'm just hoping that uh, you know he, he's going to be happy with whatever he does outside of baseball. I can see him coming back and being a special spring training instructor. Oh yeah. If he wants to be a coach, I'm sure that they would you know give him that opportunity as well too. Or they could just give him like one of those front office jobs, like one of those Brett Hull jobs, where your job is to be Adam Wainwright. Not a bad job. Not a bad job. Like, hey, we got some sponsors that are on the hook. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we're gonna we're gonna bring you in and meet them, and now hopefully that will seal the deal. And no better advocate for Cardinal baseball 
let alone the city of St. Louis and Adam Wainwright. Absolutely. I mean, a guy that's going to have uh, a plenty of opportunity, no matter, you know, whether it's playing again or um, whatever it, it, it may end up being. There's no better spokesman for the city than Adam Wainwright. Does he live here all year? <laughs> I don't. Play, he better live here all year. I don't he's think not he, a real cardinal. I don't think he does. You make that money, you can live multiple places. <laughs> okay, I, I, mean, I, I think he lives in Atlanta. He goes back down to Atlanta to, to support the uh, the other teams. He's a Braves fan. Maybe not Atlanta, but I, I'm pretty sure that yeah. an offseason home is in Georgia. It is in Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> you, you get some of these guys that come from warm climates, Yeah, and they play most of the year in warm hey, climates. When those what? St. Louis winners hit, they, they're out of here. I don't blame you for one getting the hell out of here in January and February. No. It <laughs> sucks ass. No. I mean, and if you're not from here, I mean, like, I'm kind of amazed at the number of, of uh, athletes that still live in St. Louis. I know. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Blues players especially. Blues yeah. players, yeah. they come here, they don't leave. They love it. They well, love it. Because they're here during the worst parts of the year. Like that's, I that, mean, they're playing during what the worst is. parts of the year. And if you think about it, too, like, a lot of these hockey players, they don't usually come from big municipalities. No. They come from, like, smaller towns, like, in Canada. Mm-hmm. So when they get to St. Louis, St. Louis is, is, like, it's not a huge city, but it's big enough for them. All they want to do is play hockey. All they want to do is play hockey. <laughs> and you got and to then, just, I mean, and maybe January and February here is com- compared to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, is probably <laughs> like right. probably like Florida. It's got to be. We got to be like Miami <laughs> Beach. Because uh, then you get that one random week in, in January and February. Right. It's like yeah, seventy degrees. You'll, you'll get the January. No yeah, you'll get the January thaw. Yeah, yeah. it's usually it's like very, that's very Dave Murray of you. The January thaw. Yeah, yeah. January thaw is coming. I mean, I think it's what it's called. No, I know. But, okay. But that's just what Dave Murray calls it. The, the great Dave Murray. Shout out. Retired. Dave Murray. The, re, the retired, retired Dave, Dave Murray. Murray. Yeah. Uh, he'll he'll be a future guest on the Last Man Up podcast. Oh, I'd love, to, about, I'd love, love to talk <laughs> so to Dave Murray. About the That'd be incredible. How do you, I think it'd be fun. What's the forecast next week? <laughs> Without looking at a map, tell us, is it you, going to rain next can week? Can you see like Dave Murray right now? You know, he's he's just like a regular Joe. and He's out at Shop and Save, you know, and he's in the produce aisle. And then, you know, some Joe Schmo comes bouncing up to him and wanting to know what the weather's going to be like. And Dave Murray's going to be like, God damn it, I don't do that anymore. Ask you, somebody else. You think he checks the weather before he leaves the house every day? Nah, he's or, like, I already Or if know he's this. like, no, oh, it's fine. He I probably, know, he probably I know just... He probably just like licks the finger right. and, stick, and sticks it sticks it out like, the window. And be like, it's gonna be yep, sixty four degrees. God damn it, thirty percent chance at two p.m. today. God damn it, I'm Dave Murray. I already know the weather. I already know the weather. I'm Dave Murray. Look, the weather doesn't tell me what it's going to do. I tell right. the weather what it's going to I, do. Yeah, I keep the weather up at night. It doesn't keep, keep me up. Yeah. yeah, what was that General Mattis quote? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Quite, start throwing Dave Murray in for Chuck Norris quotes. Oh wow, <laughs> there we go. I like that. <laughs> Joins on the phone right now is a 2018 NFL Hall of Fame nominee, co-host of the other pregame show, Tops, seen 7 to 11 a.m. Sunday mornings on the CBS Sports Network, and a member of the Super Bowl 34 champion St. Louis Rams, London Fletcher. Thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on the Hall of Fame nomination. How are you? Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, congratulations. I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, before we talk about your tremendous career and time in St. Louis, I'd like to talk about the first three weeks of the NFL season and the rash of roughing the passer penalties as a former linebacker seeing all the laundry in the field that has to drive you crazy. It does. Um, you know, it's just it's so difficult to be um, to be a defensive player. And I, and I understand what the, um, what the league is doing um, in, in terms of trying to make the games safer. So when I saw the, uh, the new information, when they implemented the new helmet-to-helmet rule, which actually, uh, ironically, um, hasn't been uh, called that much, you know, I kind of understood what they were trying to do, make the game safer. 
But when they um the NFL came out and they um showed us video and that and had uh, Al Riveron, the head of officials, come and talk to the CBS Sports, um, all of the NFL guys, and show us different clips that were would be considered a uh, rough in the passer. Like I literally said something in the meeting, like you know some of those calls, those aren't rough in the passer. Those wouldn't fall under the, uh, in my opinion, those are not deemed worthy of penalties. And sure enough, some of those things have happened where, you know, guys have uh, been called for penalties where, and, and in some cases, cost, uh, cost some teams some games. Do you think the solution is to that, okay, we understand what the like, – I agree with you 100% that the referees are erring on, on the side of caution and they're trying to legislate the violence out of the game, which is almost an impossible task. But maybe it's a solution to make all those plays reviewable. But if you do that, then are you opening the door that all penalties are going to be up for review? Here's the biggest problem that I see or, or one of the biggest problems. A lot of the, um, the rules that have been implemented – they sound good in air conditioning. And, you know, we, we a group of guys, a competition committee, you know, they come together and they say, hey, let's let's put this rough in the passer penalty in and let's, uh, you know, put this penalty in and make this a, a part of the game and a point of emphasis. And it sounds great in air conditioning. And when you look at it on paper, oh, this sounds great. And then when you get into the game, the game's, are not played on paper and and not really played in air conditioning, so to speak. Um, and these are real life consequences that happen um, where you where you're telling this official this should be a penalty when it's not a penalty. I mean, you know, you you want a guy to sack the quarterback, but then don't put his body weight on him. You know, sometimes you have no choice based on how you're um, tackling the guy but to fall on him with uh, the majority of your body weight. That's just that's just how it is. I can see if a guy lifts the quarterback up and his feet are off the ground and, you know, the guy kind of pile drives him into the ground, um, you know, things like that. But that really hasn't been the case, case um, in a lot of these instances. London, talking about throwing your weight around, I'm, we were talking about your stat line, your career stat line before you came on with us. And since 2001, from 2001 to 2013, you started and played in every single game over, what, 12, 13 years. How, how do you do it? I mean, it's so rare to see that from a defensive player today to start every single game within one season, let alone 13 in a row. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, um, first and foremost, I was, uh, I think the genetics that God blessed me with kind of made me um, – you know, able to sustain, um, you know, just great health. And, you know, some instances where I may have taken an, uh, uh, some somebody falling on my leg or knee or things like that where a guy may have, someone else may have torn an ACL or something like that. I may have sprained my MCL or, or things like that where I was able to still play um, just because of the way I was built. Um, also listening to my body, taking care of it, things like that. I did a um, – really um, focused on, you know, taking care of my body. Um, you know, um, Todd Collins, when I was in St. Louis, he kind of, my rookie, second year, first year starting, you know, he kind of introduced me to, hey, you need to get massages. Um, um, Jeff Scanina, my, um, you know, I saw him getting a, in doing the hot and cold contrast, you know, as a rookie. So I, I did hit, I did what he was doing. So, you know, along the way, I was just kind of um, picking up different things from uh, some of the veteran players and, 
kind of implementing things myself, seeing what worked for me. Um, but again, you know, just listening to your body. And one of the things that I really like to do and was big on was getting rest. Um, you know, I was big on getting my, my rest and letting my body recover. Just Godita still has the biggest calves of anybody I've ever seen in my entire life. Those things are like the he size does, of billboards. <laughs> now, think about this. So imagine Jeff sacking a quarterback. You think Jeff would be able to get his body, get those calves turned? No. Without If Jeff's leg could injure a quarterback, <laughs> his calf muscle, you know, that'd be a penalty, his leg falling on somebody. London, when you were, uh, you, we were signed as an undrafted free agent uh, by the Rams back in 98, what were some of the things that they liked about you? I mean, how, how come you weren't drafted, and, and what and, and how did you fit into the whole Rams uh, defensive scheme? Well, you know, I think um, – not I think. The, the reason I know I wasn't drafted is being a uh, an undersized linebacker from a Division three school, those are just too, too many knocks against me in order to get drafted, even though I put up, you know, some, some uh, very impressive numbers – in college, it was a situation where, you know, was it the competition I, that I was going against? And also, he doesn't have the size, the prototypical size to play linebacker in the uh, National Football League. I think what um, what impressed him and what, you know, impressed Charlie Army is my speed coming out of uh, college. And, you know, knowing, hey, worst case scenario, this guy, you know, he should um, have an opportunity to make some plays on special teams. You know, let's get him in a camp and and see what he can do. But, um, you know, once I got there, I don't think they um, they knew. You know, I, I ended up at a Division three school not because of my talent. It was just um, – now, I only played the one-year high school football. Had Division one offers. I just didn't didn't want to go go to college on a, on a football scholarship, so I took a basketball one. Then ended up transferring to a Division three school and playing both well, both sports. But I had Division one football talent coming out of high school. Um you know, once I got there, I was just able to show my instincts and, and my high motor and my just tenacity to want to make plays, and you know, especially on special teams. And that was a uh, that was kind of my my way in. London Fletcher joining us on the phone right now. You can check him out on the other pregame show, Tops, seen seven to eleven a.m. Sunday mornings on the uh, CBS Sports Network. He does that show with our friend Amy Trask. Yeah, I I've had Amy on my show numerous times. I absolutely adore her. How much do you like working with Amy? Oh, I love working with Amy. Amy's brilliant. She's, um, you know, obviously her experience as a, as a, I think maybe the first female executive in the National Football League. Absolutely. Yeah. So she worked um, for nearly thirty years for the Raiders. Um, you know, a real pioneer um, in the NFL in terms of um, just being um, being the first female to uh, make, to ascend to that um, that position in the in the National Football League. Um, she knows a lot about the game. She she's uh, she's f- witty. She's funny. You know, so we have we have a fun time on that show. I, really I, fun time. I watch your guys' show every Sunday morning. I do. I I enjoy the hell out of it because it's I mean it's a it, like I said it's the other pregame show. You're not beating us down with X's and O's. It's a lot of fun and it's a lot of kind of like hey you know what do you think about this game and this situation and it's coming from different perspectives. The ex player, you, the ex executive, and um and Amy, and then you have uh um uh Brandon Tierney and Adam Shine as you know as kind of like the, the talking heads. It's a it's a great mix. Oh, it is. It is. And Adam. Um, Adam does a great job, you know, navigating all the traffic, directing traffic. And, and um, you know, he has some strong opinions on things. And Brandon, um, Brandon, he's a diehard Jets fan. 
and he comes at it from a perspective of the fan and um you know what's it like you know being a fan and seeing your team you know either do great or struggle or, or some of the other situations that come up you know week to week in the national football league London, we are a St. Louis based podcast so we would be it would be a disservice if we did not talk about your career here and providing us with the last good football that we've had in St. Louis. Uh, 1999, you were part of the Super Bowl champion St. Louis Rams then at the time. Tell us a little bit about that experience going throughout, you know, a a fantastic season playing with Kurt Warner, who was named the AP, uh, you know, NFL MVP that year and just the magic surrounding winning a Super Bowl title. Man, that was a, that was a, a surreal type of season, you know, for us to accomplish what we accomplished, especially given the uh, season that we had in in 98 going four and 12 and all of a sudden, you know, ascending to the Super Bowl champion, just, um, just really a great group of guys uh, collectively on that football team. You know, not, not a lot of egos that would, that got in the way of uh, what we were trying to accomplish. Um, You know, Kurt's story is, uh, is well documented. Um, just uh, his his another unfree, undrafted guy, you know, he had a, a harder role than I did, um, you know, getting to the uh, finally getting his shot in the National Football League. So it's just um, just a tremendous story, man. You know, playmakers galore offensively, oh, yeah. defensively Absolutely. and special teams. Wise. We we had guys, man, that made plays in every facet of the game. We could score. We could score points. And we did. When you were standing out there in the middle of the field, in the middle of the dome, you know, during that magical time, and I mean, the dome would rock. I've never seen a building shake because of the noise inside of it, and that's one of them. If I would have told you, hey, within 20 years, all this is going to be gone, would you believe me? No, not at all. Not when, when, um, even in 98, when we weren't good, the the fans of St. Louis, they would come out and support the team, and um, man, you know, during my uh, four years there, we had great fan support. You know, I can remember you mentioned the uh, the Dawn Rock and that that first playoff game against the Vikings. Yes. Oh, yes. And, and you know the first defensive uh, snaps that we're taking, and I'm I'm the uh, signal caller, and I'm giving out the uh, defense to the uh, the call to the defense, and I couldn't hear myself talk. So <laughs> I know they couldn't hear me. That's 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 just how loud it was in that place. Um, you know when Isaac uh, goes, uh, you know what. For a touchdown, very first play of the game, yeah. man, <laughs> that place was crazy. I think I woke, oh, I think I woke up my neighbors screaming because uh, yeah, I was in college at the time, and I woke up my woke yeah. up my neighbors screaming watching that that first play when Isaac caught that ball and and uh, you know took it to the end zone for six. I was going nuts. Right. It was so much fun. Uh, you know, they yeah. say about off- offenses like you know artistry and defense is all about dynamite and attitude. Who who was the biggest maniac on that defensive team where you're like you get on the field you're like man, I don't know about this guy. I love playing with him, but I don't know about this guy. Give us the craziest guy on that Rams defense. He was the craziest well, guy. On the, I, oh, I, come I, on. Yeah, it wasn't I, you, I, was it London? Actually, it was me. <laughs> I was I was going to say you probably have to ask uh, my teammates that question, but uh yeah, I, I like to stir I like to stir the pot up uh, quite a bit uh out there on that on the field, I was uh, I was the craziest guy. Who was who was the best <laughs> trash talker that you ever played against? Against oh man, let me think. Um, like for an offense, like an offensive lineman, you couldn't believe how much how much trash he was talking. 
Maybe Most of them offensive linemen, they're they're scared. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't. Uh, I don't really recall guys talking too much junk to me. You know, that's the as I got older. You know, I never really paid them any attention either. So, I really can't remember who would uh, who was a, who would be a great crash. Uh, Chris Carter tried to talk some junk. One yeah, day. I can oh, see that. Playing, uh, so and during that playoff game, oh. so he was uh, when he was getting spanked. Yeah, yeah, he was. He tried to talk trash, talk me, and uh, I was like, "Yeah, Chris, man, let me know if you need some tickets to that championship." Man. <laughs> <laughs> I told him I had it, man. If he needed some tickets, there you go. <laughs> London, you played for 16 years in the NFL. You're you're a storied, you know, defensive player. You're the name recognition. You know, will never lose. Uh, for me, what have you seen that? in the game itself and the NFL itself has been the biggest transformation since your playing days have ended? Well, really it's just been a, uh, you know, evolution more, more teams, uh, um, of the passing game, I guess the, um, you know, the whole, you know, two backs offense and pro style offenses, those are, you know, not being run as much. Um, some teams don't even carry fullbacks anymore. You know, teams just want to, um, you know, do a lot of stuff like uh, like we were doing in, in St. Louis, um, you know, get as much uh, as many skilled guys and guys who can catch the ball. Um, you get if you get a dynamic uh, running back who can run out of one back sets. Um, you see the um, the college RPO stuff coming to the league. Some of the uh, other other schemes or, or plays and concepts from the college game. They're starting to make their way into the league a lot more now, especially because you think about the quarterbacks and, you know, the majority of the quarterbacks that are entering the NFL, they all play in that spread offense system or, the, you know, most of them play in that spread system. So um, teams are just starting to bring that in a little bit more and more each uh, each year. So I think you'll just continue to see a lot of that um, kind of uh, filtrate, filtrate into the uh, – um, National Football League. London, final question, and thank you again for joining us. Uh, take us through what you were feeling when you got that call, letting you know that you were a 2018 NFL Hall of Fame nominee. Well, it's, it's funny. They don't call you until you're nominated. So I just um, – I, I was getting um, – somebody emailed me first initially. It's like, hey, congratulations, you know, on um, being nominated for the Hall. And I didn't – I knew it was um, coming up like they would announce, you know, the first, uh, you know, the guys, but I didn't know what date it was going to come out. I wasn't kind of paying any attention to it. Sure. So, um, the first, first I got the email and I was like, man, what do you, so I started looking around. I didn't see it on online anywhere initially. And then, um, I getting, I started getting more, uh, text messages and, um, things like that from people, a couple of calls. I'm like, man, what, what is going on? Like, where's all these people? <laughs> Like who watches? Like what do they have a, a, a London Fletcher alert? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what's what's going on here? So um, I finally uh, found the, uh, you know, where it came out the press release, and you know, it was um, it was humbling. You know, it was um, you know, just um, when you think about your journey. When I think about my journey, coming into the NFL undrafted, you know, ascending to being um, you know, who I, I feel definitely Hall of Fame worthy. Um, I feel like my career, the, the, the work and the numbers that I put in, you know, there's no question I should be in the Hall of Fame. But it's still when you when it starts to, um, you know, finally like, man, you know, the process has really started for you. It does kind of make you um, think like, man, wow, 
you know, it, it, it's, it's very humbling. Well, I know that you're still loved here in St. Louis. And then uh, when they didn't, you know, re-sign you after that 2001 season, there were a lot of upset fans. I know I was one of them. And I, I just want you to know that the people here in St. Louis, they still they still ask about you. They still talk about you. And if you ever were in the St. Louis, you, you probably wouldn't have to worry about paying for a drink or a meal. <laughs> I would buy you a drink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. I, and I'll tell you, man, I, I loved uh, playing in St. Louis. That was Those fans were awesome. They treated us well. Um, through the good times and bad, you know, luck, uh, we were fortunate to have more good times and just, uh, man, I, I love playing in that, uh, in that dome and representing that city. Um, you know, it, I look at it, um, you know, the, the Rams made a decision. I, I, I think we all can say they definitely made a mistake. <laughs> but, My man, um, boom. The, 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 the thing about that too, um, you know, I was also able to go play for Buffalo. Some of my best friends are from, uh, you know, during my time in Buffalo, and I played for the Redskins. You know, a lot of great relationships there. Playing in the nation's capital, um, you know, Mr. Snyder was great to me. So it's just so many things where you can look at it and say, because I, I, I was upset, angry and upset, you know, by not being re-signed by the Rams um, or offered a contract that, that was worthy uh, of uh, my play. Um, you know, but after you get away from me, like, man, I was able to go and have these – um, experiences with these other organizations and 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 have great relationships in three cities now. Absolutely, London. Thank you so much for making time for us, and we hope to have you on again soon. Enjoy the rest of the season, sir. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, London. thanks, London. That is the great London Fletcher. Like I said, you can catch him on a Tops, the other pregame show, which is seen on Sunday morning, seven to eleven a.m. on the CBS Sports Network. Joining us on the phone right now is Jeff Perlman. He's a longtime sports writer and the author of eight books. His latest is entitled Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Jeff, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for asking. Uh, I was researching your book, and it's 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 crazy that the USFL it hasn't been in existence in over 30 years. But this, yep. it, it, you've written books about the New York Mets, about Brett Favre, about Walter Payton. But this is something that you've wanted to write about since you were in high school. That is correct. And uh, I was repeatedly told there's no market for it. Nobody wants a USFL book, et cetera, et cetera. But I knew I wanted a USFL book, damn it. So I, uh, <laughs> I pushed forward, and I, I really – I did. I really wanted to write a USFL book, and – I knew it was a great story. I knew it wasn't going to be my best-selling book, but I just knew the story was so great. It was worth chronicling, and here we are. So, so, so what, was, what was the final sales pitch? What do you think it was that kind of pushed it over the edge? I'll tell you exactly what it was. I, um, my last book was about Brett Favre, and I had – it was called Gunslinger, and I had multiple uh, publishing companies bid on Brett Favre. And I told Houghton Mifflin, I said, I will take less money from you to write Favre if you give me some money to write the USFL. And uh, my editor there, Susan Canavan, agreed. And I made less money writing that USFL book than anything I've written in my life. And I'm 100% happy and satisfied and grateful for the opportunity. Jeff, what was it about the USL, USFL specifically that made you want to write, I guess, more than an article, a full-fledged book? I mean, it's a couple of things. I've been using this analogy a lot, but it's really, really true. Um, I have a daughter who's 15, and when she was about five, we took her to Disney world for the first time, you know, and, and she's walking around Disney world and everything. She's mesmerized by everything, everything, uh, the princesses, the food, the, the parade, just dazzled by it all. And I was that kid with the USFL when I was 10. 
I was dazzled by the helmets and the jerseys and Herschel Walker and Craig James. And I just, everything about the U.S. of dazzled me. And one of my favorite things about writing uh, books, especially, is that you get to dig back into your nostalgia, that you get to go back in time and deconstruct something that you understood only as a boy. So for me, going back in time and writing about this glorious thing in my head, I mean, it's the best part of being an author. It truly is the best part of being an author. Passion project. Total passion project, 100%. What is the one thing about the USFL that you learned that you didn't know before you started writing it? All right, so there, I, people ask me that question, and I totally understand it. There are 8,753 million things I did not know about. Because <laughs> you have to remember, I came at it as a kid. Like, I was a kid yeah, when right, right. I was here. So I just knew the basis. I mean, I think that I didn't realize how absolutely insane the thing was. Like, it was insane. I mean... It was like North Dallas 40 on steroids and Coke, right? It was, <laughs> it really was. I mean, the best, the best example I can give, cause it's so, it's my, it's my new much too. The San Antonio gunslingers put a player on the disabled list after he slams his penis in a trunk. <laughs> I don't even know how you do that. I truly don't know how you do it, yeah, but he dude, slammed his penis in a trunk. Obviously cocaine. Yeah. Cause I know the Perlmans couldn't do it. So he, he, like, <laughs> he like, it was listed as a strain groin. There's another player on the LA Express who got cut and instead of accepting it, punched his coach in the face and started calling in death threats to the league. And the league had to end up hiring the team. The LA Express ended up hiring Liberace's bodyguard to come and protect the coach because the coach was receiving death threats from this guy. Um, this is a million, I mean, uh, the Boston Breakers in 1983, their first season, they had a really exciting and important moment for their franchise where they, they signed the Outland Trophy winner, Dave Remington of Nebraska, to be their center. And that was a huge, huge deal for them. And they, they negotiated on the phone, and they reached the agreement, and Dave Remington was flying to Boston for a press conference. And he was supposed to land at Logan Airport at 2 o'clock, and the breakers send their people to greet him. And it turns out the whole there was no Dave Remington. And it turns out the whole time someone was just playing a prank on him. Oh, wow. <laughs> so this is a million crazy stories, one after the other after the other. And I just my job was just to make it a book. It seems like everything back then was a lot more fun than what it is now. It seems like now everybody's kind of uptight due to social media. How do you think the league would fly today in this day and age? Everything that happened like in the 80s, happening it now in 2018. I couldn't. It couldn't happen because um, I said this. I wrote a book about the 86 Mets, and people would be like, how would that team survive today? And the answer is it could not. Um, everyone has a phone, so everyone's a reporter. Everything gets put online. You know, there was a scene in this book, I mean, a moment in this book, the coach of the Houston Gamblers is walking out of the stadium and he hears a commotion from under the uh, stands. And it's uh, not to be too graphic, but it's a prostitute giving oral sex to four players just standing there. Oh, my like, God. <laughs> you couldn't. You would not do that in 2018. Yeah. I don't. Comfortably. I would not have done do that. that. Thing. I would not have done that in 1984. But I still <laughs> in 2018. So I just think like the level of insanity, the level of drug usage, the level of prostitutes, cocaine. I mean, it just you couldn't do it now. It just couldn't, you couldn't be, you couldn't be. Jeff, you've been through this process, you know, a half dozen times, maybe even more now with the release of this latest book. Um, you know, you used to work for Sports Illustrated. Uh, the John Rocker article obviously was, you know, was very successful for you. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Um, what, I, what I want to know from you is as you release these books, what do you take, you know, from, from each individual book that helps you kind of write the next one or I guess, look for a topic for your next book? Well, that's a really interesting question. I, um, I don't really know. I mean, 
the thing that is true is like, uh, so some of my books I enjoyed more than others, you know, like anything, and some of them I really got a lot out of. But everyone, if nothing else, represents a time period in your life. You know, like the bad guys won my first book. My daughter was born as I was writing that. Uh, the USFL book was this book that I'd been dreaming of doing for a long time. The Walter Payton book, I just felt haunted by Walter Payton throughout so much of that because when he died, I did one of the last interviews with him, sit-downs, and I always pictured him with his jaundiced eyes, shrunken. Um, Clemens was a lesson not to write a book that you're not really into. Like, I was not that into that book, and the experience was not that fun. But those are all, like, those are all valuable, you know? They're all valuable. So I, I feel like every book, it's not always leading you to make you a better writer. Sometimes you just get something out of it that sticks with you, and it could be a life lesson, or it could be just a, a moment that you remember. Author Jeff Perlman joining us on the phone right now. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Uh, going back to this USFL book, uh, let's let's talk about the elephant in the room here. The fact that Donald Trump is president of the United States and one of the most notorious figures in the world, that probably can't hurt the book sales, can it? Uh, it's really interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I think PR-wise it helps as far as getting on, you know, you're getting on networks, you're getting on Fox News, and you're getting on MSNBC, and those are places that probably wouldn't be talking about a 30-year-old football league. Uh, at the same time, and I understand this, there's so much Trump fatigue in this country. I think whether you love him or hate him, I think it's, just, it's not natural to thought, think and talk about someone every day of your life. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't know. I think sometimes people out doing an interview and we'll be talking about how fun the USFL was and the interviewer will naturally and understandably transition to Trump. And even I'm a little like, ah, Trump. Yeah, I need a cig- <laughs> I don't even smoke. I need a cigarette. <laughs> and and th- and this book really isn't even that much about him. He's in it for a little bit at the very beginning, but as a whole, this book is not like you know some kind of big slam of Trump or a big promotion of Trump. He just happens to be in it because of his ownership of the of the New Jersey Generals and his desire to take on the NFL. I, I didn't hear you on that. I'm sorry. Say that again. I, I said that uh, you know like this this book really isn't. He's not even that much in the book. So people thinking that oh here here comes oh. another you know liberal author writing another slam piece about Donald Trump. He he's barely in it. Well, I can't say he's barely in it. I mean he he did ruin the league and he did bring it down and he is a huge factor in the demise of it. The number one factor in the demise uh, in the demise of it. Um, I just think I I've been saying this throughout. I, you could be the most liberal writer in the world. You could be the most conservative writer in the world. You could be Sean Hannity or you could be Chris Matthews. If you research the USFL accurately, your only takeaway is that Donald Trump, uh, selfishly and for his personal needs, ruined the league. So whatever you say about it, and that's just the truth, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't impact what you think of him as a president, but, but researching a book on Donald Trump, researching a book about the USFL and reading into Donald Trump, it, it's hard to come away from his USFL experience and think, yeah, this guy would be a good president. This is a guy I want. He's a self selfless man. I just, it would be hard to, to leave the USFL thinking <laughs> he, he, that. He just, he, he just wants to give. Um, the letter that you found from Tampa Bay Bandits owner John F. Bassett about him threatening to punch Donald Trump in the face if you ever met him in person, I don't care how big you are, that, that, that had to be like a, a real fine for you whenever you got that. Oh, yeah, it was great. And, um, it was money. John Bassett was the owner of the bandits and he was just the one guy who was not afraid of Trump and stood up right to Trump and had no, he believed in spring football all the way Bassett did. And he, I have that letter hanging in my wall. I didn't even I'm looking up and it's there. And my favorite paragraph maybe ever written is it was 1984 written on Tampa Bay bandits stationary to, to uh, letterhead to Donald Trump. And it says, 
you're bigger, younger, and stronger than I, which means I'll have no regrets whatsoever punching you right in the mouth. <laughs> the next time an instance occurs where you personally scorn me or anyone else who does not uh, happen to salute and dance to your tune. I mean, it's so just great. And he signed it, kindest personal regards, which makes it even better. Yeah, it, that's something that someone could have written, you know, two weeks ago. I was just thinking that, actually. I was just thinking that. you could. That letter could have been written today. It really could have been written today by someone who had to deal with that guy. Jeff, you've obviously done a lot of research, you know, as you've gone on now to publish this book about leagues, football leagues, other than the NFL. I'm curious as to what your take is on now the XFL and the AAF coming into fruition here in the next year or two. Uh, I don't think the XFL, I don't really have faith in the football vision of Vince McMahon. I just think he's more of a cartoon character than a, you know, I don't even mean that meanly. You like wrestling is cartoon and his kind of whole brand is cartoon. Sure. I don't think football fans want to take, would take that that seriously. But I, uh, on the other hand, the Alliance, I think is kind of smart. They're going to interesting markets, mid-major generally markets. They're not going against the NFL. They're just, if a guy gets signed off of the, Orlando Apollo uh, roster and signed with the Oakland Raiders, well, they're going to celebrate it. You know, they're not going to be like, oh, the Raiders, how dare they? They're going to say, look at this. We developed a player. Now he's in the NFL. Sure. And they're also having regional drafts. So, got, you know, the Atlanta team is going to presumably have guys from Georgia and Georgia Tech. And I just think that's smart. So I don't think you can take on the NFL right now and win, but I think maybe it could be a subway you can win. Clay brought it up earlier, your uh, your article about John Rocker that came out in the 1990s. As you were writing that, did you know at the time that this guy was basically kind of committing career suicide? No, I did not. I um, I certainly didn't know going into it. While he was talking, I was kind of confused. Um, it was just weird. It's weird that someone opens up so sort of with such kind of ugliness to you. You know, it's weird. Um, and the thing I always say is after – so Rocker got suspended. He got demoted. He became a public, you know, joke. He was ridiculed on Saturday Night Live, all that stuff. And, you know, a lot of my friends and people I knew, they just, wow, that's so cool. I never felt good about that. Uh, I never regretted this story as far as the content. I never want someone's life to be harder because of a story I write, even a guy like that who I have no respect for. I'm not looking to ruin anyone. It's just, you know, it's just writing. It's writing a profile. So... I never took ha a moment's happiness. I think he's a vile human being. I still do. But I never took a moment's happiness in seeing anything negative come out of that story for him. You know, and I, I always said, um, baseball, you're required to talk to the media uh, after a game if, if you play Major League Baseball. And you can't expect everyone you employ to have open-mindedness because we're all raised in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. So... If you're going to force these guys to talk to the media and then one of them says something that you're uncomfortable with, well, that's kind of on you because you insist that these guys open up to the press. And again, you can't, you don't know the backgrounds of all these guys. You don't know John Rocker from Macon, Georgia. That's just how he grew up. doesn't make it right, but I wouldn't have demoted him for it. I would have just called him into the office, given him a lecture and maybe find him and moved on. What was the backlash that you received personally after that article came out? Because as you said, you know, John Rocker from Macon, Georgia, pitching for the Atlanta Braves, uh, down south, they don't exactly take kindly to, to people from New York. I, I would imagine <laughs> that, that you received more than, than one hate letter. Yeah, but it wasn't terrible. The toughest part was I was covering baseball for Sports Illustrated and the following spring training, going to clubhouses and having guys sort of ignore you or blow you off or not want to talk to you or kind of embarrass you. Uh, you know, that was rough, but I, 
I can't compare. I feel like Rocker got the short end of that stick. You know, he he thought we were two white guys driving around Georgia, and he thought he could just say whatever he wanted, and I'd laugh along and probably think it's funny and charming. And uh, it's just that's not how it works. Jeff, you've obviously met uh, some very polarizing figures in in your sports coverage. You know, over the course of your career, does anything honestly surprise you anymore? I mean, going from John Rocker to learning about you know prostitutes giving blowjobs under the bleachers, does anything ever surprise you anymore? Oh yeah, it does. That's kind of the fun of it all. Just hearing the stories and being like, "Whoa, did that really happen? Did that really happen? That didn't really happen. Did that really happen?" Like, I love that. I love that. And yeah, people still. Even the stories I wrote about in this book, you're like, did that, what? Really? That really happened? Like, I love that stuff. I'm, at my core, I feel like in many ways, I'm still the 15-year-old boy telling fart jokes with my friends, you know, and sleeping out in the backyard. Like, that's still me. I still like the funny, and I still I still find that. So I still love hearing crazy stories from when you were kids. So, yeah, I'm still surprised, and I'm still amused by it all, too. So you wrote the book about the 86 Mets, the bad guys won. And in that time period, the Mets and the Cardinals had one of the most heated rivalries that I can remember. I would almost say during that time period, the Mets were a bigger rival than what even the Cubs were. Uh, what was your perception of the Cardinals growing up as a New Yorker and as a Mets fan during that time period? I always thought of them as the bad guys. I did. I always thought like it was like Willie McGee and Vince Coleman and Tommy Herr and Daryl Porter, uh, Ken Oberkfell, Ozzie Smith, obviously. And uh, I mean, Ozzie Smith always projected a certain joy but i always thought the cardinals were like this perfect army of baseball players and that they were kind of th- thugs who would just come in and beat the crap out of you so in 86 <laughs> when, the mets, when the mets beat them i mean that was a huge that was absolutely i remember when they got vince the cardinals got vince coleman and it was like yep of course the cardinals they need a leadoff hitter and they get a guy who steals 100 bases isn't that just perfect and like they got Willie McGee from the Yankees for Bob Sykes. And it's one of the great <laughs> trades. It's insane. So, and Ozzie Smith for Gary Templeton. You know, like everything worked out for the Cardinals back then. You know, they got guys like Lonnie Smith and Tito Landrum. Like stuff just worked out for them. So I hated the Cardinals as a kid. You know, we kind of felt the same way about the Mets uh, here in St. Yeah. Louis. I mean, they were this perfect army of baseball players that were going to come in here and 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 whoop us. Uh, yeah. There's there's quite a few plays that stand out to me, the Pendleton home run in 1987 uh, against uh, Roger McDowell, I believe. Yeah, um, it was McDowell. Yeah. Uh, anything else, anything stand out to you that get that gives you favorable memories of, of that time between the Cardinals and the uh, Mets? Well, I mean, um, Gary Carter hit a game-winning home run against, I think, Tim Worrell on, on was it opening day. But he did. I think it was his first game as a, as a Met. Yeah, he did. And that was a huge moment. That was like, that was a moment where the Mets were like, okay, we're, this isn't you guys beating up on us. You guys bullying us. That's done. Like we're done. I'm here. Gary Carter's here. Don't mess with us. <laughs> um, so that was like that was like a really big. And also, I'll tell you what was big for me was when they got Keith Hernandez. And I remember they got him for Neil Allen and Rick Owenby. And it was like, wait a second, they got Keith Hernandez for Neil Allen and Rick Owenby. <laughs> how the hell did that happen? Then you realize the drug history and the kind of the, the contentious relationship with Whitey. But I mean, it's kind of funny you. You're not supposed to give guys that good to your rivals, and they did. I guess they, but but in '83 the Mets weren't really the rivals; they were kind of the sad sacks. But they ended up handing their best player to the, you know, the, what turned out to be their big rival. Do you remember the Mets are pond scum, uh, made popular by a St. Louis DJ uh, back in the, around '86, '87? 
Well, I wrote about that in the Bad Guys One. That was mentioned in the book. That's oh, great. Awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. great. Um, so, so what's next for Jeff Perlman? What's the next project you're going to be working on? The next, uh, the next team, the next sports figure you want to cover? Uh, I'm doing an NBA book. I, uh, I'm always nervous about giving out the topic, the specifics, just because I'm paranoid. But uh, it's an NBA book. I'm into it. I'm still promoting the USFL, so it's like you, you, there's no time to write when you're promoting. So I guess I spend all my time talking about the USFL, which is kind of fun, actually. Jeff Perlman, the name of the book is Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Uh, you can get it any place where books are sold. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Jeff Perlman, thank you for your time, sir. This was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Thanks, guys. It was really enjoyable. Thanks, thanks Jeff. Jeff. You've been listening to the Last Man Up podcast, part of the St. Louis Podcast Network. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Berger. You can follow Clay at Ton of Clayton, and you can follow Andy at Emo6. Speaking of Andy, we're going to go to him right now for the, the five hot sports takes. Hey, we have we, uh, the new uh, sports take segment that we uh, th- that we established last week. Uh, I'm glad you guys like it. I do. I, I, lo- I love this kind of thing. Uh, kind of big fun. I love it. Great so here are the, uh, from Awful Announcing, here are the top five hot takes of the week. Uh, Jeff Ehrman calls the North Texas fake fair catch a Bush League play. No. If you're North Texas, who was North Texas playing when they did that? Uh, it doesn't matter. They were North Texas. If you're North Texas, you have to do anything you can to win. Because, right. I mean, North Texas right now, their claim to fame is what? Stone Cold Steve Austin, that's and that's it. it. You don't get any respect if you you're get, North Texas. You get no respect if you're North Texas. So whatever you have to do to win the game, if it's legal, you can do it. So, yep. no, I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm good with it. Andrew Walker blasts fans who complain about NHL players trying to ban teammates' video games. See, I go back and forth on this because as a millennial, I really enjoy I And they 100% talk about Fortnite in, in uh, the interview or the piece. I, I remember that. I go back and forth on this because athletes love to play games. I love to play games. So I, don't, I have a big problem with someone telling me that I can't play video games in my free time. Now, if that interferes with what's going on in the locker room and out on the field or ice, whatever, okay. But I don't like people telling me what I can and can't do. Okay, I'd probably be one of those guys telling you to quit playing video <laughs> games because I'd be like, look, you're an adult. You're 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 a grown ass man. So how's it any different from the freaking like ping pong club or anything? Well, that drove me crazy too. Okay. Yeah. So like, I'm not discriminating. Or what they have back in the 06 or the maybe was it the eleven the eleven clubhouse or the 06 they had that big buck hunter. Yes. Yes. In yes. the clubhouse there they, they, too. They, because they had a bunch of hicks who loved to hunt. I can, I can understand, like, sometimes it can be kind of like a team bonding thing. It can. But, I mean, like, some of these people get addicted to playing these video games, yep. and they're up all night doing And I, yep. I don't get it. And grown adults, if you're a teenager, I kind of sort of understand it. But if you're a grown man and you're up all night playing Fortnite, you're sad. I'm yeah, sorry. If you're a young athlete, I mean, not there's not a ton of athletes that are under the age of 21. But, I mean, if you're if you're – like rookie level contract, like not making a lot of money, not much else to do. I understand there's worse things you could be doing out there. At least you're not, you know, doing a bunch of coke or you right. know, running over cop cars. Well, because they don't go anywhere anymore because of cell phones. Yeah. So I mean, if they're staying home playing video games, so- and, and a lot of it is too, because I saw this about the NBA, that the NBA, the the players on the road aren't going out anymore because of Tinder. Yeah, it's dangerous. Oh, really? Because they can just sit there and just basically get their women on tender, and that's it. For they don't have to worry about going out anywhere. <laughs> Stephen A. Smith, Damian Woody, and Victor Cruz go in on Vontae Davis for retiring at halftime. There have been plenty of hot takes on Buffalo Bills defensive back Vontae Davis's decision to retire at halftime of their game Sunday. And surprisingly, ESPN's first take came in with some of the hottest. 
Some highlights include Smith saying, that is one of the weakest things I've ever seen an athlete do. Woody's saying, I'm sitting right here right now. My blood is boiling right now. Honestly, I would want to fight this cat. And Cruz saying, if we were there, there would have been an altercation. Oh, I, I I totally get it. I do. I get it. Now I I laughed. Yeah. But if you're in that locker room, you're pissed as hell. You're you're furious, furious. Yeah. But as someone who is about as far removed from the NFL as one can be, I, I found it funny. I, I'm like I'm am a huge NFL fan, but I'm like I'm it's not my livelihood, so, so I I find it hysterical. And it's like Vontae Davis, it's not like he was. It's not like it's um like Josh Norman retiring at halftime. Where he was like at, at the peak of his athletic prowess. Right, right. It's Vontae Davis. He's been around the league for a long he's, time. He's in the back half of his he, career. Exactly. So he's just like, and that and that that game hurts whenever you're playing it. So I I kind of sort of get it. But so let me ask you this though: Would it have been less funny if he, he had been on a good team? Did it make it that much more funny because the Bills were getting yes, destroyed? Absolutely. So if he'd been on the Rams and the Rams were you know winning you know they're three and zero now, had he been on the Rams, would it have been as funny? It still would have been funny, but not as funny. But the fact that he was on a bad Buffalo Bills team, which was, looked which looked good this past Sunday against they, Minnesota, they did. But they were getting skunked at home, and he re- and he retired at halftime. No, it's hysterical. Take two. Former NFL executive Jeff Diamond, who worked for the Vikings through '98, starting a PR and eventually becoming GM, and then became the Titans president until 2004, says in the Sporting News that Le'Veon Bell's holdout has reached the point of career damaging consequences. I don't know about that. I mean, like, right now, every hit that he's not taking is one less hit on his body. I mean, Le'Veon Bell is still in his mid-20s. You can see that if you're a running back and you take care of your body, you look at Adrian Peterson. He's played pretty well the past couple of weeks. Yep. So I, I, he's probably coming at it from an executive point of view. I'm coming at it from a player point of view. I don't, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. And there's always going to be teams who are going to take their chances on Le'Veon Bell. I was now, are, are they going to pay him what he wants? Probably not right. because the, the running back position has been so devalued, but I don't think it's career suicide what he's doing. I think if he ran his mouth a little bit less, teams would be more obliged to either go trade for him or well, sign Did for you see him. what James Harrison said? Yeah. James Harrison said that he should sign that offer and report to camp and then just have phantom injuries for the rest of the year. Yeah. I mean, he, he's doing a disservice to himself by not at least showing up to practice, which was James Harrison's point. Yeah, and if you're on that Steelers team, you're furious with him, and I get it. You don't oh, want yeah. you don't want him in back in the locker. I mean, what can he say at this point to convince the sixty other guys in the locker room that yes, I'm a team guy? Those guys get it. Yeah. As far as like you know what, hey, you got you got to take care of sure. your own and get as much money as you can. Sure. But also, there's also the other side of that coin is is that. We have maybe a special team here in Pittsburgh, even though like we're one, two, and one, or whatever it is. Right. We're not off to a great start, but it's a long season. Mm-hmm. We could, you know, we're a legitimate Super Bowl we contender. Could have, we it could have won those games if you had been playing. It doesn't happen every year, and you're kind of messing up with my legacy and and, and my job. So right. I, I get where they're coming from. Yep. Take one. On their Sirius XM radio show, Chris Childers and Aaron Murray suggest that Alabama is the 33rd NFL team and they would beat the Buffalo Bills. Every no. single year they say that and no. They're no. idiots. They're idiots. But every year you're always talking about how college play college team X could defeat NFL team Y and college team X could, could defeat NBA team Y. And there's a big difference between college football players and NFL players. Those NFL players, and they get, even though it's Alabama, mm-hmm. and they're usually stacked with NFL talent, they get on that field with an NFL team, they're going to look really small, and they're going to look really slow. I was going to say, one of the biggest... Na- slow knock- is key. 
one of the biggest knocks on guys as they come into training camp as rookies is well he's not where we need him to be physically yet. yes you know like he needs to get back in the weight room or he needs to lose weight because you can get away with that stuff in high school and college nfl you need to be in the pristine condition to play Speaking of, so lo- they would never. No, 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 they would never beat an. NFL speaking team. of, speaking of looking slow, I'm not here to announce that the New England, uh, New England Patriots are dead, but on that Ooh. that Sunday night game against Detroit, they look really old. They look really slow. I'm just saying. Oh wait, we so, not saying they're dead, but they look slow. Wait, wait, before you go on, we have the hot take standings to, to go through. We'll just do the top five. Jason Whitlock is the Hall of Fame hot take guy. Uh, Stephen A. Smith, this is for the year. Okay. Stephen A. Smith has 211. Skip Bayless has 191. Phil Mushnick has 147, and Colin Coward has 74. A lot of people can't stand Stephen A. Smith because of first take, and I kind of get that. But if you listen to Stephen A. Smith's radio show, which is heard middays on ESPN Radio, his radio show was actually really, really good. I would imagine it is. If you don't like Stephen A. Smith, the TV personality, there's honestly a good chance that you would like Stephen A. Smith, the radio personality. And I mean, not to take away from his horrendous takes that he has sometimes, but the guy is more right than he is wrong. And people, I think hate the fact that he's just as loud and obnoxious about it. Well, I mean, like, I, he used to really annoy me because that's when he was like, he was screaming A. Smith yeah. and not Stephen A. Smith. Mm-hmm. And then I think, like, the couple of times that he got licked by ESPN maybe humbled him a little bit. Oh, yeah. And now that he's been back, I, I find him more entertaining and more enjoyable than I have in the past. That is the week in hot takes, courtesy of Awful Announcing. Thank you very much, Andy. And thank you to London Fletcher. Uh, our first guest, and then Jeff Perlman. Make sure that you follow Jeff Perlman on Twitter at Jeff Perlman and pick up a copy of his book, uh, uh, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. And we will see you on the other side. How long did that take?